Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. Quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to Doomsday Watch. In the first series, we heard from Mike Martin, former soldier, academic and expert on conflict. Mike's come back to us to talk about the war in Ukraine. Mike, welcome. Hey, Arthur. So, Mike, let's get straight into this. Uh, You've been tracking this war since the first day. And for anyone who hasn't seen your threads on Twitter, they should look them up. Right at the beginning, uh, you identified that the Russians didn't seem to have enough soldiers to mount a full invasion of Ukraine. But then they tried to do that anyway. So how did that work out? Yeah, in fact, my original prediction was that they wouldn't invade because they only had 200,000 soldiers. And I don't know, you probably need about a million to wander into Ukraine and topple the government. And predictably, it's been a bit of a disaster because as well as not having enough soldiers, those soldiers don't have the right kind of equipment. You know, their battle groups are kind of very infantry light and they need more infantry. The morale's very poor. Um, they've had huge problems with logistics. Um, and and the Ukrainians, I think, were quite aware of the way they'd go about this, they'd sort of have these big armoured thrusts into the country to try and get the Ukrainian government to collapse. And the Ukrainians were quite aware that that was what they were going to do. So they allowed the heads of those armoured thrusts to go past them and then just smashed up their logistics. That's interesting. So so what, what you're saying there is that the, the Ukrainians were actually sort of letting these kind of if we sort of think of them as kind of snakes winding their way into the country, letting mm. the heads of those snakes come in and then going around the back and, and destroying their supply lines. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. One is that um, the Ukrainians were obviously part of the Soviet Union. So there's lots of people who are alive, probably not still in uniform, although I suspect actually that the people at the top of the Ukrainian tree, so the, the 55-year-old generals, the 60-year-old generals, will have yeah. served in the Soviet army. So they're very, very well aware of how the Soviets operate. And one of the plans really for the Soviets in their sort of war plans for Europe um, pre-1990 were these big armoured thrusts, lots of artillery um, and attempts basically to cause the collapse of the enemy. Um, And, uh, you know, it's such an overused phrase, but amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics when we're dealing with mechanised or armoured warfare, fuel, obviously, but ammunition, 
um, food, all the obvious things that you need to keep that armoured formation moving. The amount of supplies is unbelievable. And most of the time that's unarmoured. And so it's very easy to pick it off at the tail. Are you surprised at how badly the Russians have done? And as you, you, you focused on this issue of logistics, and that does seem to be a real core issue. But equally, if this has always been part of a kind of Soviet and, and then inherited by Russia military concept, then you would have thought that the logistics bit of it is equally part of their military concept. So it's still, it's hard for me to understand how this could have gone so badly wrong for them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's one very big difference um, between Soviet times and now, and that's the amount of mass forces that the Russians or the Soviets have to hand. So to give you an example, to give you a nice little phrase, um, Stalin said that quantity has a quality all of its own. And, you know, we have these stories in the Second World War of one rifle being issued to two people, and they both ran forward. And when the guy with the rifle got killed, the other one picked it up and carried on. Um, Now, that's fine, um, except that to do that properly, you need millions of men in your army. And as we discussed, the Russians started this campaign with 200,000 men. And the problem is, if you lose 30,000 or 50,000 troops, which is broadly what we think the Russian casualties and wounded and captured are currently in the campaign, that's a quarter of your force, which basically makes that force unable to manoeuvre, unable to supply itself. And I think that's the big difference. So is it that the Russian warfighting doctrine hasn't caught up with the fact that Russia is now a country with a a sizable but not massive population? And of course, it's not a country with a growing population. And, and therefore, it sort of conceptually, their, their whole method doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's it. I think there's a number of things. I mean, there's what you've just cited, you know, it's declining. Um, there's more women than men, all that kind of stuff. Health is very poor. They also have a number of commitments. So, you know, Georgia, North and South Ossetia, um, uh, uh, Transnistria in Moldova. They're very worried about China. They need to station a large number of troops on the Chinese border. Um, they have some disputes over some islands with Japan. You know, so there's a number of commitments that tie up you know, Syria, that tie yeah. up their forces, that mean that this million strong army, which they're meant to have, well, in reality, how much combat power can you free up for an operation? And I think we have the answer for that. It's 200,000. And the reason we know that is because they're now paying Syrians 7,000 to come and fight. They've tried to pull up the Chechen irregulars. Um, They wouldn't be calling on these people. Central Africans have been paid to fight for Russia. And they wouldn't be calling those guys up or paying them if they had any kind of formed reserve. Indeed. I want to talk a bit about the Ukrainians, because of course, that's the other bit of this story. And might we even say overperformance of the Ukrainian military. And then one aspect of that that's interesting to me, a lot has been said about the training of the Ukrainian army in recent years by NATO countries, including the UK, Mm. and the degree to which within the sort of the NATO way of working, a lot more decision-making power is pushed to the sort of junior officers. Now, obviously, you've got your own experience of having been in the British Army. Could you explain to someone who doesn't have a military background sort of what that means in practice and how that might help uh, Ukraine at the moment as it defends its territory? 
Okay, so this is what the British Army calls mission command. Um, and before I go into it in practice, I'll go into it in theory. Yeah. Um, what it is in theory is that you push decision-making and accountability down to the very lowest level that you can. And the reason for that is your forces are much more flexible, um, they're dynamic, they can make decisions quickly, and, and so on and so forth. So what you do is you give them a broad framework, you know, this is my, I'm the commander, this is my intent, this is what I'd like to achieve, and then you effectively let your subordinates get on with how they want to achieve that. Uh, that's the theory. My experience is, and I, I should say that that idea was developed, uh, was certainly became solidified within British Army thinking post-Second World War yeah, and, and during the Cold War. Now, in practice, because of the communications revolution that we've had particularly since the turn of the millennium. And I'm thinking of one thing in particular, which is encrypted radios. Um, that causes commanders to overcommand. See, before encrypted radios, what you had to do was work out your message and then literally get a, a bunch of bits of paper and use a ruler and work out, oh, it's an A, I need to put a B in it and send that through. And you know, it was yeah. called the Batco wallet. It was incredibly time consuming. And so that kept messages very short. Now with yeah. encrypted radios, you just pick it up and you know that it's secure. So there's a lot of overcommanding going on. So I, I can't speak to whether, um, I mean, obviously, the Brits and the, the Americans will have tried to imprint this philosophy uh, into the Ukrainians. I can't speak to whether they are actually using it. It does appear that um, there is quite a lot of small unit manoeuvre, whereas the Russians have kept themselves in battalions and brigades. So it, it may well be happening. But I'm not sure. I have to say, if I, if I look at what it is that's decisive, I think it's probably three things. I think the fact that uh, their backs are against the wall and this is a fight for national survival, yeah. um, as far as they're concerned, and coupled with that, They've got exceptionally high morale um, and the population is in support of them, right? So if they turn up in a farmhouse after a firefight, they'll get fed and so on and so forth. And so I yeah. think that's very, very important. Um, and then secondly, I think that, you know, we've already cited it, is this understanding of how the Russians are operating. Um, and then thirdly, I'd actually cite a particular piece of kit, which are these anti-tank weapons um, that we've, the West has been flooding Ukraine with. And because of the way that the Russians are fighting, which is these long armoured tails that are largely, you know, armoured head but unprotected tail, these weapons have, you know, two or three or five kilometre standoff distances. So yeah. the Ukrainians can sit in a wood and wait for the convoy to trundle past and then knock it out. Like it, it really, really is effective. So never deploy tanks if you or, or any kind of vehicles if you think that there's an anti-armor threat. So these these missiles that we're supplying to the Ukrainians, because as I said, the, you know you can just stand in a wood line and pick them off. Yeah. So what you need to do is if you want to deploy tanks, is you've got to have screening infantry, and the infantry is there to screen for minefields, anti-tank weapons, you know all that kind of stuff to stop the tanks getting ambushed because tanks are a very very good tool for attacking but they're not a very good tool for defending yeah so each each type of asset or each type of force has its own benefits and the russians you know if you look at their battalion tactical groups you know everyone's going on oh god they've got 150 or 190 btgs but if you look at them they're very artillery heavy 
and they're very tank heavy and they've only got maybe 200 infanteers in that formation of 800 or 1,000. And that's not enough um, to screen a formation of that size to protect it. Um, and it. And that's compounded by the fact that Russian morale and training is so low. So if you're a, a conscript and you're scared, you don't want to get down from your vehicle because you feel safe in it. It's like a cocoon. And yeah. if your officer or your sergeant says, no, get down, we're going to go on an infantry patrol, you're like, you must be mad. But actually, <laughs> it's that discipline, you know, comes down to the infantry, always comes down to infantry. It's the discipline of getting infantry out on the flanks, dug in, cold and wet. That's what keeps everyone alive. And and poorly led forces with low morale just simply don't have the discipline to do these very simple things. And we hear a lot about combined arms operations. Is that what we're talking about here? And, and the Russians' lack of facility in them? Absolutely. Yeah. So your three ground elements in combined arms operations are like artillery, tanks and infantry and obviously there's various variations on those and different weapons they can have and then you might have um, reconnaissance troops out front so they might either be in light tanks or maybe in fast vehicles or on motorbikes and then you'd have you know something up in the sky either drones or satellites or planes giving you some sort of um, surveillance capability um, and so on and so forth and so you build up all these different assets into a combined way they're like building blocks if you like to give you a combined way to project force um but if you're if you're if you're unbalanced if you're lacking in any of those elements or you're not using them properly the whole force is vulnerable if we look at now what's actually happening you know today 30th of march there is uh, reporting that the Russians are moving away from Kiev and now focusing down on the Donbass region. Said against that, it seems like there was quite a lot of sort of airstrike activity last night in Kiev. But of course, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true that they're they're redeploying troops in that direction. Um, so, what's your belief now about what the current Russian uh, military aims are? So I think they started the conflict with an over-optimistic, hubristic even uh, view that they just wander in uh, and, and knock the government over. That obviously hasn't happened. Um, yeah. it's, it's taken them some time to realise that that's not going to happen. And, and this is kind of standard in like autocratic, you know, decision making systems where everyone's a yes men. You know, finally, someone's got the message through. And. I guess I would say we might as well just ignore what the Russians are saying. You know, they're saying they're going to pull back from Kiev as a way of, uh, you know, do building trust to facilitate peace. So, I mean, whatever they say is just irrelevant because it's all a smokescreen. But we do actually yeah. have evidence on the ground that some of those forces, Russian forces north of Kiev, about three or four days ago, small pockets of them were getting encircled. Yes. Other pockets of them were digging in rather than going forwards. So what is Russia doing? It, it seems like a bit like um, the, the West in Iraq and Afghanistan is they've realised they can't achieve the original goals they've set. So they are shifting uh, what their goals are because they need some sort of domestic victory. And this is vital for Putin because this is his war, right? He's gambled everything yeah. on this. And if you look back through Russian history, Russian leaders don't survive if they lose wars. So he has focused on the East. Yeah, that much is clear. I think they would like to join up the East, the Donbass with Crimea. Um, yeah. Obviously, to do that, they need to finish off Mariupol. Yeah. If they... <laughs> 
the easiest way to, to finish off the East is to draw a line from Crimea up to Kharkiv, which is the city in the northeast, the second yeah. largest city in Ukraine, which is about 50k or whatever from the Russian border, through Dnipro. So kind of up the river and then cutting across. And that would encircle quite a large pocket of Ukrainian forces. So that would be the easiest way to achieve yeah. what they want to achieve in the east. The question is, I think, that's quite a big maneuver, right? Mm. They're cutting the country in half. That maneuver and the associated logistics in order to keep that rolling, um, I think would be quite difficult. You know, it's, it's about 35 kilometers a day that an armoured force can move. And that's basically unopposed. Well, they're very heavily opposed. So it takes them some time to do that encirclement, which obviously gives the Ukrainians quite a lot of time to react, break the encirclement, you know, all resupply their forces and stuff. So I suspect that the easiest route to what they want to achieve, which is encircling the Ukrainian forces, is beyond their capability. So then the question is, are they going to do some kind of hard slog in the east around Mariupol? Yeah, possibly. But then again, that, that corridor along the sea in between Crimea and, and Luhansk and Donetsk in the east is quite thin. You know, thin corridors by the sea, it's quite easy to cut them. You know, this is yeah. the problem that Israel has when it, when it looks at itself. If it sees that it can be cut in the middle. Mm. Um, so I, I think those are its aims. It's downsized them. Um, whether it's able to achieve them, I think, is another question altogether. Before we come on to that, if we would just go back to Kiev for a bit, because obviously that was such a core element of the original plan to topple the government. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, there was some reporting evidence that, that the Ukrainians had managed to encircle some of those troops. Yeah. So I'm wondering, what's your sense of how many of the troops that were originally targeting Kiev are able to then be manoeuvred sort of south and east and move in that direction? Or how many are basically stuck there? Well, I think that's interesting. I'd, I'd almost flip that on its head. Um, so I think the Russian forces have got to, well, they've either got to make peace, right? And in which case the forces will be allowed to withdraw. I can't see that happening. I just don't think the Ukrainians are in a, I mean, why should they? They've got the Russians on the run. Um, and I think they know that if they don't impose severe costs on Russia, then Russia will come back in a couple of years and finish the job. So those forces, Russia's got to get those forces out and then round. But that means getting into Belarus and then going all the way around. So it's quite a long way around. Um, yeah. And one thing about land warfare is that it's much easier to go forward i.e. to advance, than it is to go backwards, which is to retreat. A retreat, yeah. a fighting retreat, is probably the most difficult land manoeuvre to execute um, because you've obviously got to maintain your fields of fire to the front whilst also getting everything out. Um, yeah. So I expect the Ukrainians will make mincemeat of those forces. But the reason I think it's actually on its head the other way around is that if the Russians... Because Kiev is the strategic center of gravity for the Ukrainians, you know, Zelensky's there. That's where he does his, you know, speeches to the American Congress and all the rest of it. Yeah. So important for Ukrainian morale. The Russians actually probably don't want to withdraw those forces. They want to keep them there because what it does is it ties down quite a lot of Ukrainian forces because they have to defend their capital. Right. So I suspect, and, you know, we've heard these reports of the Russians digging in 
actually, I think they're staying there as basically their job is to fix as many Ukrainian forces in the defense of the capital as possible, defense in inverted commas. Um, yeah. If I was the Ukrainians, I'd be trying to encircle those forces, take as many prisoners as possible, um, and then, you know, treat those prisoners com- strictly in accordance with the Geneva Convention and make sure that everybody around the globe knows that they're doing that. So part of the part of the moral war, then redeploy uh, to deal with what you want to deal with, you know, the Russian increased threat in the east. Yeah. So moving on to that down in the Donbass, and, and obviously there's a there's a sort of arc which takes you from the top of Crimea all the way around to Kharkiv, as you described. About 300 miles, 208 miles. Yeah. And as part of that, you've got this, this fairly thin stretch along where Mariupol is and so on. Mm. And it seems that even if Russia is able to, you know, kill off the last defenders of Mariupol, maybe they'll use, Mm. you know, even more indiscriminate bombing and Mm. so on. Mm. um, That will always and forever be a very, very vulnerable uh, stretch of territory. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So then you find yourself wondering, or this is what I find myself wondering, is... um, Right at the beginning of this war, of course, there were the two Eastern, you know, so-called republics, Mm -hmm. you know, Russian-backed separatists or Russian forces, depending on how we describe them, Mm -hmm. held elements of both of those territories. And there was a sort of line of control, a ceasefire line. Um, It seems quite possible that Russia will end up back there. Do you think that's likely? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, we have to bear in mind that the Putin is the guy who's controlling this, or certainly setting the strategic objectives. And his main target audience is now very heavily shifted to the domestic, because he's worried that if he can't get some sort of uh, benefits, you know, fruits of victory, if you like, from the conflict, then he's in a very, very shaky position. So it's not what he wants. It's not what the Russians want, but it's what they've been forced to accept um, by the Ukrainian resistance. But I suppose then that the question would be if you if you're Putin and, and you know, like any all politicians, you know, will always claim a victory in, in any scenario. So if you get to the end of a massive war where you've lost, you know, tens of thousands, including loss of lives of your own troops, yep. at the end of it, you've literally got the same bit of the map that you had before you begun. It seems to me that this is and this is, of course, not a pro-Russian point. This is just an observation it would be impossible for the Russians to negotiate mm. a peace on that basis, I would have thought. Um, well, yeah, so I think if Russia ends up with the two bits of the Donbass and then Crimea, and even if they get a little, you know, get a little corridor between the two, they'll obviously try and present that as a victory. Um, I think that opens Putin up to, you know, there's been lots of speculation about a coup yeah um whether that's by the army or whether that's by you know the security so the fsb types i think that does severely weaken him um he's 70 i mean how much longer is he going to be around so then thinking about you know what where does the ukrainians interest lie because obviously we've heard various hints from president zelensky that ukraine might accept neutrality can a ukrainian leader uh, politically survive effectively giving concessions to Russia when all along Russia was the aggressor, you know, Russia's demands have never been reasonable, 
whether you sort of look at international law or just a kind of you know the the law of of, of morality. Um, so how it's actually quite difficult for Ukraine because it doesn't seem that they they're not going to drive all the way to Moscow, are they? So you know what what, what are their options? Um, I, I think so. Zelensky is quite aware that he needs to thread a very difficult needle in in negotiating a peace because I think there's a danger. You know, we, we've now got a heavily armed population in um, um, Ukraine. Yeah. Literally, everyone's being being armed, and so there will be people. You know, lots of people have lost members of their family. Um, people have different views on Russia. People have different views on Europe, um, and so he's very aware of that. And that's, I think, why last week he said that any, essentially, any agreement with the Russians needs to go to a referendum across all of Ukraine, because um, yeah. that enables him to help try and, you know, and then you set the conditions for the referendum. Everyone needs to be disarmed first, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And the UN needs to, you know, make it fair and all the rest. Of it. So you can see that kind of spinning out and being a way of bringing everyone together. But I actually, you know, it's very easy for me to say this, but I don't think that's in Ukraine's interest. I think they're keenly aware that if costs aren't imposed on Russia, as they were not in 2014 with Crimea and the original move into the Donbass, then Russia will come along at some point and finish this off. Um, So actually, I think that if possible, I would imagine that the Ukrainians will be looking not only to take Russia back to its, you know, borders or sorry, its dispositions rather, not its borders, its dispositions on the twenty third yeah. of February before the uh, invasion. But I suspect that they are trying to kick Russia out of Ukrainian sovereign territory. I think anything less opens them up to you know, future adventurism from either Putin or whoever comes next. You know, strategy is essentially often making the least worst decision quicker than your enemy. Yeah. And effectively, I think the decision that the Ukrainian leadership have is, or the choice rather, is take civilian casualties now in places like Mariupol. But we have the option of imposing costs on Russia by encircling forces north of Kiev, perhaps pushing them out of the Donbass, or if the Ukrainians are feeling really cheeky, if they could kick the Russians out of Crimea, that would be stunning. Yeah. Um, but you'll lose a lot of civilians. But if you do that properly, you'll impose such costs that Russia won't come back again. A bit like Russia yeah. doesn't mess with the Finns anymore after the Winter War in the second in 1941. On the other hand, the other choice they have is, well, actually, we need to save civilian suffering. And so we'll make a peace which effectively hands Putin a victory, you know, maybe this corridor in the south, maybe those two self-proclaimed republics, whatever. So that will stop our civilians dying. But effectively, we have the sword of Damocles hanging over us. And I think that the Ukrainians are going for the former. They've decided that no matter how many civilian casualties they take, they've got to impose these costs on Russia because they'll end up taking the civilian casualties later next time Russia tries something. And what I think is fascinating is the Ukrainian leadership has the support of the Ukrainian population. Yeah. As far as I can tell, they at the moment, they have the support for that strategy. Um, so, you know, why are the Ukrainians even bothering to go to the negotiations? I actually think that they're going so that they can't be painted as 
you know, they're the side who wouldn't negotiate. We wanted to negotiate. I don't think they're actually, at the moment, the terms are nowhere near what they'd accept. And when they talk about neutrality, but with security guarantees and the security guarantors of the US, UK, France, Germany and Turkey, well, that sounds pretty much like being a member of NATO to me. Yeah, indeed. Just a quick shout out to, to Mike's two-week-old baby who, who's made some <laughs> contributions of her own. She's got, she's got some interesting thoughts on uh, strategy in Ukraine. Well, g- given, given her parentage, I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> so I suppose going on, the question about the, the cost to impose on Russia, you can see the Ukrainian thinking. And of course, the, the Russians must be capable of, of seeing this too. They, of course, can make decisions in a different way because they have access to sort of uh, weapons of mass destruction, whether we're talking about small-scale nukes or chemical weapons. So w- what do you think are are the sort of foreseeable points of escalation? Because that might be Russia's response if they're, if they're losing the conventional war on the ground to, to, to move into that space. Mm. I think what is likely is we'll see even more raising of cities like Mariupol and Kharkiv and stuff. Yeah. And that's because it, it's 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 actually, from a logistics point of view, is much easier for Russia because they're all ne- near the Russian border. We've already discussed whether they're going to be able to kind of cut the country in two between Kharkiv and Crimea. I don't think they will. I don't think they've got the ability to manoeuvre. Hmm. And then, of course, the question is uh, nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. And um, at risk of making predictions, I, I don't think they're going to go for either of those. Um, yeah. and, and my logic is the following. You know, on nuclear, so what are we talking about here? Maybe a low-yield nuclear weapon somewhere within Ukraine. I think for two reasons, really, that that doesn't work. One is it doesn't fit the domestic narrative um, in Russia. You know, he's there to save the Ukrainians from their governments. The Ukrainian and the Russian people are one people, all this kind of stuff. So using nuclear weapons on your own people, even for the, the propagandists in the Kremlin, I think would be um, <laughs> a step too far. And I think the other thing is it invites, I think, there would have to be a response um, from NATO, from the Americans. There's two aspects to that response. One is I think it becomes inconceivable that Putin remains in power after using a nuclear weapon in Europe. And secondly, I think probably a nuclear use by Russia m- might or probably would lead to a use of a nuclear weapon by. Uh, NATO by the United States or by uh, France and the UK are the two other nuclear powers um, that are pertinent to this. And uh, whether that is a you know a new a demonstration nuke in the middle of Siberia just to demonstrate that we're serious about it, or whether it means going straight for kind of you know command and control in Moscow or whatever. It, once you've done it, then it, it escalates, and then we're in a big thing. And I think Putin's aware of that as well. Or there's sufficient ambiguity around it that there's a risk that is too big a risk for him. Um, and I think when it comes to chemical weapons, um, some of the same reasoning applies. Using chemical weapons on the Ukrainian population, when you know last July Putin published an essay saying that the Russians and the Ukrainians are one people, I think that's very difficult for him to fit that into his narrative. It also has a number of difficulties in that his forces, Russian forces, are very close. You know, they're they're fighting street to street, bayonet to bayonet. So if you're going to use chemical weapons, you've got to either equip your forces to operate in a in a in an NBC environment. And I haven't yet seen any evidence of Russian soldiers being equipped with the with the you know the chemical suits and all the rest of it. Yeah. 
And then again, I think there's also the problem of escalation. You know, there's been some unclear signalling from NATO and from the Americans about what will happen um, with, you know, if the Russians use chemical weapons. But I think, I think, even though that signaling has been unclear, and I wish it had been clearer from NATO, I think Putin's aware that there will be some kind of response. Yeah, I don't know how that helps him. If we come back to, you know, what are their aims now? They're trying to salvage something from this kind of pretty poor performance and using chemical weapons and then getting getting European states, NATO, more involved in the war makes it even harder for him um, to achieve what he wants to achieve. So I think I think that I think it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. And it's worth saying uh, for any listener who's not familiar with this, that NATO does not have and will not use chemical weapons. And um, so therefore, presumably, it would just mean that NATO escalates in other ways. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I think a, a final question, if Elsie will allow, which is mm. um, uh, sh- what what should the West be doing? What should NATO and, and other allies be doing, which they're not doing already? Um, actually, I think the response has been good. I've been actually really impressed. Broadly, it's three things, isn't it? It's um, sanctions, it's uh, support to the Ukrainian military, intelligence, weapon systems, all the rest of it, and it's international isolation of Russia. Um, And I think they're the right thing. The only thing I would say is that governments all around the world often confuse activity with output. They're like, ah, right, Russia's invaded Ukraine, we've got to slap loads of sanctions on. what I would say is, I think the step before that is understanding what your strategic goal is. Yeah, And it's not clear to me yet what, what the West strategic goal is. I, I think the West strategic goal should be to support the Ukrainians so that they hand the Russians' uh, asses to them on a plate. And that then creates this, the, the circumstances within Russia where Putin gets either steps down or gets removed from power. And so I'm not talking about a NATO intervention, but basically the Russians get rid of him themselves. Yes. And, and that neatly aligns with what the Ukrainians want as well, right? So that's also yeah. beneficial. So then if that's what they're trying to do, then that then gives you a lens through which to assess all of your sanctions. Is this sanction going to help us create that eventual aim of collapsing the Russian military and then you know tightening the noose around Putin? This isolation, what exact type of isolation do we want? Who are we going to target with that? So on and so forth. And so I think that's all I would say is the broad areas are right, but we can always just more tightly define our high order strategic goal is. And I get it. It's difficult because we've got 30 countries we're talking about here, you know, European, American and stuff. But that's, you know, that's the point of NATO. The point is that they need to come together and work out what it is they're doing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us, particularly with a two-week-old child. And it, oh, and thank you for uh, contributing to this episode of Doomsday Watch. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. 
Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.